Speaking of Jesus in his own words, is the series that we're getting into. The reason why I think that this series is going to be so important is because, as we just saw, we all have this way of putting words in Jesus' mouth. We all have an opinion about who Jesus is. Some people say that Jesus is a great teacher. Some people say he's a prophet. Some people say he's a myth. Some people say he's a liar. Some people say he's God. Everybody seems to have an opinion about who Jesus is. Just by way of example, a little while, quite a while ago, I was on an airplane and uh, sitting down, um, and we're talking, we kind of started up this conversation. I was traveling along with the person next to me. By the way, uh, when, you're in, when you're in my line of work, like these are always interesting conversations because nobody, nobody loves finding out that they're sitting next to a Christian minister. That's just... But I know, I know that the conversation is going to have four steps to it because they always, do, they always do if you're me. The four steps of the conversation when people find out is on an airplane, number one, they ask the question, they ask, so where are you going? And, you know, a little snarky, but I like, look around and like, literally everybody on the plane is going to Chicago right now. It's like, and if I'm not too snarky, the follow-up question is going to be the dreaded one, at least for them, that says, what do you do for a living? And I'll tell them that I'm a pastor, and you can almost see the, the, like, the color drain out of their face as they regret asking that question, which leads to the third, the third step in the conversation, which is apologizing for the language that they've used up to this point in the conversation. <laughs> And then the fourth step is where it gets interesting because people seem to recall all of the spiritual moments, the religious experiences, the things that they've done in their life, recall all of these experiences and just start like sharing them. So like, oh, that's cool. I went to vacation Bible school in third grade, right on. I got married like near a church and that was pretty awesome, right? I'm like, okay. And we just start, I sat down next to somebody on a plane one time. We went through all four stages and then they got to the end. And they started sharing their opinion on Jesus, on who he was. Now, this person, by their own admission, and they said that they are just adamantly not Christian, however, positively disposed to Jesus, which is often the case. And so he went on and on and on about, about how Jesus is this great moral teacher, about how he was probably the most influential human that have, has ever lived. The person kept going saying, again, remember, not a Christian, but still extremely positively disposed, saying, you know, if you just think about it, they were telling me that the kingdom that Jesus was talking about, he kind of turned into this moral code thing, which I believe is a lot more than that. But he said the kingdom that Jesus kept talking about, it's funny how you think that kingdom outlasted every other kingdom that has existed in his day, including the Roman kingdom. The, the Roman Empire. I mean, it's just wild to think about how influential, about how important, about how such a great moral teacher Jesus was. Everybody has an opinion on Jesus. Now, the counter to that is often, yeah, but he also claimed to be God. And you don't claim to be God and still get to be a moral teacher because you're either a liar, you're either a lunatic, or you might actually be Lord at that point. But you aren't a moral teacher anymore. Everybody still, everybody has an opinion about Jesus. And why I think this is incredibly important for us to talk about together is that you have an opinion about Jesus as well. Now, maybe you grew up with Jesus. Maybe he was, he's someone that you made a commitment to when you were very, very young and you tried your best to honor that commitment throughout your entire life and you plan on honoring that commitment. But you have an opinion about who Jesus is and was. And one of the most scary or one of the most terrifying parts of that is in the words of, of, of Tim Keller. He said that, that it's possible that, that, that your concept of Jesus, your God, never actually disagrees with you. 
And so your opinion about Jesus, your idea about Jesus as God, isn't actually someone else out there somewhere, but it's actually just an idealized version of yourself. We have an opinion about who Jesus is, all of us. Maybe Jesus is the, is the hope and the answer. Maybe he's the, one, he's the one with all the cards. Maybe he's the one that's holding back success or holding back wealth and riches and everything you possibly imagine. It sounds more like Santa Claus, but maybe that's your idea. Maybe that's your opinion about who Jesus is. Everybody has one. Maybe this morning you came here on a last hope Hoping for Jesus to show up, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a very long time, but you badly need him to make a difference in your life, and you're hoping that he will, and I'm hoping, we're all hoping, and we're praying that Jesus shows up too. But the point of all this is that you, me, all of us, we have an opinion about who Jesus is. And so maybe it would be a good idea this morning to open up the Bible and to listen to how Jesus tell us who Jesus is. And that's what the idea of this series is about, to break down the walls about who we think he is and find out from the source who Jesus said that he is. And we're going to do that by looking at these passages in the gospel, the book of John. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the Jesus stories. And John arranges his a little bit differently. By the way, you can look this up in the Bibles, into the uh, seat backs in front of you. Also, the words are going to be on the screen. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kind of organize their Jesus story according to chronology, according to time. And this happened, and this happened, and this happened. John loosely does that, but he's, he's more interested in arranging it by themes and by topics. And one of the key topics and themes that John arranges his Jesus story by is by using these statements called the I am statements. You can see how it's relevant to this series when, when Jesus turns to the crowd or turns to his disciples or, or turns to the Pharisees, the teachers in that time, and he says, by the way, I am, I am the true vine. I am, I, I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. And, he, and once he said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, truth, and the life. Jesus turns and he says, I am these things. And so we're going to take a look um, at, at a number of these I am statements to try to figure out, to try to understand who Jesus said that he is and the difference that he makes in our lives. We're going to go to the book of John. We're going to go to John chapter 8, like I said, Bibles, and then the, uh, in the chairs and, uh, and on the screen behind me. John, it starts off this way in verse 12. And by the way, we're not going to get like a whole lot past this because what I like to do is that these words are so loaded. I'd love to just do like a throwback Bible study and just figure out like what are the things that Jesus is picking up on? Like what, what's he riffing on to, to make his point and to just drive it home? So the first thing that kind of launching pad from this is, is John in verse 12 here. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, this is a key line. He says, I am the light of of the world. Now we, we bolded the word I am there because I want, I want that to stick with you when Jesus says I am. Because he's not just simply making a statement, I am the light of the world. It's, it's so much more. It's so much deeper than that. So when Jesus says I am the statement, he's actually using one of the most clumsy, one of the most redundant, one of the most awkward ways of making that case, I am the light, that, that's recorded anywhere in scripture. You could, you could almost look at it and say, you know, I, I would assume that this was a typo or this was a mistake somewhere along the line except for it's repeated seven times in the Gospel of John. So I think that there's probably something going on. 
yes, there's definitely something going on. It's awkward, it's redundant, the way that, that John wrote it out there because it's almost like, I, I am the light of the world. And it's like, well, why did, you, why did you have to say that again? Now, in our Bibles, we just see it, I am the light of the world. But John is like giving these cues to his readers, to his listeners, and, and all of us to say, there's something more to it than this. Now, to us, we just look at it and say it's a simple statement of being the light of the world. To back then, they may have thought the same thing unless they were a Jewish audience, which th- this group was. Then they would have found this deeply offensive because they would understand Jesus is riffing off from this Old Testament, uh, this Old Testament uh, stories and lines where God has related to his people often enough using this phrase, I am, to refer to himself. Give an example of what I'm talking about. In the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, God uh, drops in on Moses. Moses is a leader, potentially, you know, later on. Right now, he's, he's leading sheep, literally, not figuratively, just like animals. His father-in-law's animals far away from the nation of, Is- the nation of Israel. And, uh, and he's doing that thing. And then God like, breaks in the form of a burning bush and, and calls Moses over and says, hey, Moses, at the yeah, tender young age of 80, uh, you're going to lead my people out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, into this place that I'm going to show them. So Moses has to die to his dreams of moving to Florida and taking up golf and listen to, to God um, tell, give him this mission. And when Moses comes in, in Exodus chapter 3, and, and Moses hears this and says, are you kidding? You want me to do this? I am in no way qualified to do this. That's a different sermon altogether. But one of the things that's relevant for Jesus is that when Moses asks back to the burning bush, God in the burning, revealing himself in the burning bush, Moses says, hey, who should I say sent me? And God gives him this answer in Exodus 3, 14. It says, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites I am has sent me to you. God says, I, you know, when you, when you refer to me, it's, it's difficult to put this into words, but, but I want you to hear, like, like, I am the I am. In Revelation, we see this picked up as the great I am. This is who I am. I am, before the earth existed, I am. Long after these things will pass away, I am. I am, I have always been, and I always will be. God says, this is, this is who I am. I am. So in the Gospel of John, when everybody is wondering, who is this Jesus guy? And how does he do all these miracles? And they ask him. And Jesus throws down these statements like, I am. I, I am the light of the world. You could understand how that would draw attention to himself. You can understand how that would be frustrating if you're a religious authority. You could understand how eventually, not too long from now, we're going to celebrate on Good Friday his execution, his death. By way of crucifixion, you could understand how very deeply offensive a statement like, I, I am the light, the light of the world would be. He goes on in the next line. Don't forget this. He goes, I, I, I am. I am the light of the world. Now, that's the dropping in on what, what we really want to get to here. Because when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, you've got to understand what's happening behind him. 
I mean, I, I don't know if it's literally like figured behind him in a geographical way, but I just sort of imagined it that way. We do know that while this conversation is taking place, um, there is uh, there's a temple uh, in, in the scene. He's in Jerusalem at the time, and they're celebrating one of the major three Jewish holidays. This one is the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the, the Feast of Booths. Every, the Jewish calendar kind of revolved around these three holidays that are kind of like our Christmas and Easter, right, where the calendar kind of turns on these things. But uh, for, for the Jewish people, one of them is the Festival of Booths, Festival of Tabernacles. This is the time when, by the way, this is going to get weird and hard, but then we're going like, to come out of it, and I think it's going to be pretty meaningful. So just hang in there with me if you could. I'll tell you when to drop in, if not. But uh, so this is happening. The Feast of Booth, or the Tabernacles, is when the Jewish people in, in Jerusalem, kind of all over, wherever they are, they, they move out of their homes and they move into these tents out like outside. Like actually, like, they go camping together. The reason why they do that is, is to commemorate, is to celebrate the, the time way back in their past, in their history, when uh, when, when God brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and moved them into the desert, and then they eventually went into their own promised land, into the nation we, we know today. Um, but but like they, they got there, but for a while they lived in tents. Now, what's, what's good to know about that is that God also lived in a tent. God said, my presence is going to be here in that tabernacle. And when we move, just pack it up, roll it up, work for 10 hours to try to stuff it back in the case that it came in, that why do they make it so small? But, but, and then we move on and we go, we find a new place. We set up shop for a little while. And they celebrated the festival of, of, the, of booths or the festival of tabernacles, the same reason why we go camping today, to appreciate the things most when we are without them. You don't appreciate indoor plumbing as much as when you go a week without it. You don't appreciate what God had done for you until you experience, until you camp outside for a short term, and then you realize this great thing that God has done. Okay, that's just kind of what the festival is all about, but the reason why that's important is because at night, during the festival, they'd get these uh, religious classes, the Levites, they'd come in, the people would all be gathered around the temple courtyard, and it'd be four like, pillars set up, just massively high, in a high place, in the highest, uh, one of the highest structures in Jerusalem, and these guys would climb up these huge ladders and these big jugs, and then they full of olive oil, which is very flammable, and they pour the olive oil into these vats on top of the pillars that had a wick in them made from the, the priest's clothes, because why not? And then at night, they would light it up. And the point was that anywhere in Jerusalem, you could see these massive torches lit in the sky. And then the pillars, the columns of smoke rising up the next morning when they were extinguished. And it would trigger this memory in the people's mind about the stories that they grew up on. That when God led them out of the promised land and into the desert, he led them by way of a pillar of fire at night and a column of cloud or smoke by day. And so when Jesus turns to the crowd, to the people, and I don't know why, but I'm just imagining the column of smoke if it's day or the, or the flames at night that you could see anywhere from Jerusalem in the background behind him. And he says, I, I am the light of the world. At one point in history, you were led by light in a cloud. Today, you are led by me. 
I was the one who guided your ancestors. I was the one who watched over you. I was the one who protected you. I was the one who had your back and led you forward. I was the one all along who guided you into your promised land. And today I am here to continually guide you into your promised land called heaven. I, I am the light of this entire world. And a time will come where the whole world can see me shining brightly, leading and guiding and protecting. I, I am the light of the world. When Jesus says that he's the light of the world, he means a lot of things. The first thing that I want us to see is that light reveals God. Jesus reveals to us the heart of God to lead us and to protect us, to guide us forward. Light reveals God. But he continues. And after he says, I'm the light of the world, he says, oh, by the way, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know, one of the things in Jesus' day, there was the, the rabbis, the teachers around, and they said that um, they, they said that the highest form of worship was actually to study the scriptures, to study uh, God's word. And the reason why they said that was because uh, they, they said, when you pray, it's like you're talking to God, which is awesome and amazing. But when you study the scriptures, when you read, you, you hear from God, you hear God's whisper into your life and into your heart. And so I just... It's not really related, but I love that point because the more you dig into this, the more there is there. For example, and this was news to me this week, but, but, but these I am statements, these seven statements in John, every single one of them is accompanied by a miracle, which is like pretty incredible. So before, before Jesus says that, that he is the bread of life, he, he just... He just fed 5,000 people with a kid's lunch of bread and fish, right? And, and then he like, turns to everybody and says, oh, by the way, I am the bread of life. But before he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, he talks to Lazarus' sister who's weeping and mourning over the loss of her brother and saying, Jesus, if you were here, you could have saved him from death. And Jesus says, listen, I am I am the resurrection and the life. And then he says, Lazarus, come out of the tomb, and Lazarus does. Like, talk about an object lesson, right? When he says here, oh, and by the way, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. In the next chapter, he's just about to meet a man named Bartimaeus who has been blind from birth, literally walking around in his own darkness because he can't see anything. And, and then he says, you know, restores sight to Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus says, I can see for the first time ever. Whoever follows me. It's interesting that Jesus came as the light, not just to reveal the path, but also to be the one, who to be the one we follow after. An example of this, a friend of mine was telling me earlier this week when he was out of the States in a developing country, and he's outside of like a city center and driving around the roads, and this is because there is like no light around except for like the, the stars and the moon at night, and it gets dark, like really dark, and they're cruising along, trying to make, it, make their way back, uh, back to, the, uh, to, their, to their city, to their home, and this car like pulled up behind them. And, and they didn't think like totally much of it, except for it didn't have its headlights on, which is a little creepy because it's so dark and, and the roads, it's so dangerous. And they, and they started taking note of it after like 10 minutes 
uh, the car was still behind them. In fact, it got closer and closer and just driving like right behind their bumper as they're like winding their way through and like, you know, dodging the, dodging the paths, you know, the road hazards along the way, which was plenty. And, and they just, this is so strange that this car is like right behind us and it, getting a little nervous about it until they got to their city, you know, the next town. And so there's like lots of ambient light. Lots of ambient light all around. And then a car pulls up beside them and, uh, and looks over. And the, guy said, and the guy pulls up and he rolls on the window and he looks outside and he goes, hey, thank you. You see, my headlights were out. And the, on- the only way I could make it home safely was to follow closely behind your taillights. That is, that is the message of the hope that we have. When Jesus says, and by the way, whoever follows me will, not, will no longer walk in darkness. The only way that we have a chance to make it home safely is if to, to follow closely behind the taillights that Jesus sets before us. Light reveals God. It guides us along the path nearer to him. But light also... Light also has a downside that I want us to see. I mean, it's not so much of a downside, it gets better, but we also see that that light not only reveals God, light not only guides us, but but light also exposes the darkness. And this is the part that that we don't love thinking about. You see, the image of God, like following along Jesus and his taillights is awesome. Until you like start to change the metaphor just a little, just slightly, and say, say, what if, what if you can remember back in the days, you know, back, back in my youth or, you know, yours or something, when, when you were out late at night and you were at some place and the music is bumping and you're like dancing and you're out there and it's a, some of you that was last night and that's cool. I'm glad you're here or more likely watching online, but I'm glad about that. No judgment, no condemnation here, but, but, but like you're out at two, three o'clock in the morning when all of a sudden... All of a sudden, they announce, like, it's closing time, last song, the music is killed, and the lights get, the house lights turn up brightly, and all of a sudden, light exposes everything around, and you start to look around, and this, like, cool vibe that you just once imagined a few seconds ago has now been revealed to be, like, this dirty, sweaty, kind of sticky, nasty place with, with people here celebrating 80s night, probably unironically, and you're, and you're looking around going, like... Light exposes darkness. And that's not always an awesome thing when you're in the middle of it. Because you know what? Most of us would probably not want the light shown on those moments in our lives that we'd prefer stay hidden. Most of us would probably choose to worship a God who never disagrees with us, who never chastises us, who never cuts across our grain or our way of thinking. Most of us would probably be content with worshiping a God who is the idealized version of ourselves. And Jesus breaks into this and says, whatever your opinion of me is, I want you to know who I am. I am the one who reveals the heart of God. I am also the one who guides you, but I am also the one who exposes everything. And that is a deeply uncomfortable place to be but it's also the best place to be. Because when Jesus turns to us and he says, I'm gonna expose all of this, but I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it not in a way to belittle you, 
but to build you up. When Jesus says, I'm going to expose everything, he says, I'm going to do this in a way not to harm you, but to help you. I'm going to do this in a way that's not going to hurt you, but it's going to heal you. I'm going to do this in a way that isn't going to convict you, condemn you, but it's going to be to convict you of a greater life, of a better life, of a better way, of my way, not your own. Jesus says, I'm going to expose those dark things in your heart so that together we can work on them together and we can fix them together. But first you need to die to whatever is living inside of there. And that's going to be a painful process. But in the end, it's going to be so much better, so much richer than you could ever even imagine. Light exposes, but it also transforms the darkness. We'll wrap it up with the very first line in the opening of the Bible that no doubt Jesus was also riffing on. When way back in Genesis 1, we read that in the beginning of everything, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and it was empty. It was without structure and it was without filling. Darkness, that's what he called that, Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. You see, when God saw the world that had yet to be created, he saw something that was without structure or form and it was without filling. And God went about and he he fixed that and he solved that. God looked at it all and he said, you know what? The first thing that we need to do is we need to make, we need to make light and darkness. We need to make sky and water. We need to make land. We need to make a structure for these things. We need to make make a form out of them. And in the next three days, God said, I'm going to make the sun, moon, and stars to fill the light and the darkness. I'm going to make birds to fill the air and fish to fill the seas. I'm going to make animals and people to fill up the dry ground that I had just created. I'm going to fill it. I'm going to form it, and I'm going to fill it. Give it structure and give it shape. And God said, when, it, when structure and shape comes to something, it's no longer walking around in darkness, but it is light. And there was light. And Jesus comes in and he says to his crowd, his people, along with all of us today, and he says, you know what? You might be heading into a week that's without structure and without meaning, that's been emptied out and just void of life. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to speak into that. I'm going to give you structure. I'm going to give you purpose. I'm going to give you meaning. And Jesus spoke into that darkness, into the darkness, the dark corridors of our heart, and he said, let there be light. And we remember him saying always, I am the light of the whole world. That's the message of Jesus this week. That's the hope of Jesus this week. That is the transformational power of Jesus this week. To fill all the broken, cracked shards of our hearts. To give us meaning and purpose. To redeem even the ugly parts and make us into something beautiful. Make us into something that looks and loves more and more like Jesus every day. He is the light of the world. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus Christ, we pray to you. And it's on your authority that we can do this. Because you are the righteous one. You are the good one. 
You are the light, and we are drawn to you. Lord, we, we are drawn like moths to a light. We just can't help it. We can't hold ourselves back because your grace and your love and your mercy is simply irresistible. And God, as we, as we draw near to you, as you pull us tight this week, you're going to have a word for us. You're going to have a word to call us out on something. Maybe it's our weekend plans. Maybe it's our friend group. Maybe it's our parenting. But God, you're going to call us out on something and we're not going to want to hear it because light exposes God. But remind us in a way that only you can that light also transforms everything. It transforms the darkness and it brings to light things that we've never seen before. God, we want to see things that we've never seen before. We want to be someone that we've never been before. And we can only do this through your incredible power. And it's in your righteousness, it's in your authority alone that we can approach the throne of heaven in whose name we pray, amen.